observance, observant, observing sessions and planning for success on episode 368 of Actual Astronomy. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane, where amateur astronomers should love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So uh, Shane, we're, we're talking about what we do for an episode and we thought maybe we would do a deep dive. And then uh, I did a deep dive and started making up a list for Mike and I, because uh, the skies ended up clearing out and we're looking spectacular. So um, I went observing and kind of uh, ditched my preparatory plans for the podcast. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so we were uh, we were going to observe last night and I started thinking about some, some targets and we even had some success. So that's always good. We... Uh, we worked through uh, a number of observations together, and we were able to uh, observe uh, Sharpless or SH two two sixteen, the largest visible planetary nebula and the second closest. Not sure if you've ever observed or even heard of that one, Shane. Never observed it. That one is a toughie. I even put difficult in my notes. My notes are very brief. Usually there's no notes. This one says difficult. Um, we failed to make some other observations, but uh, that one we we did make. But I thought maybe what I would do, and uh, and you've done lots of observing as well, so could uh, sort of work for the both of us, is um, talk about how we sort of uh, go through a bit of the planning and the execution of how we do our, our observing, sort of the mechanics of it a little bit, which sometimes we don't talk uh, too much about. So I thought, you know, what the heck? I just did that. I feel like I'm incompetent to do anything else except for talk about what I just did. And then I'm probably just going to go right back to bed after we're done this. <laughs> Sounds good. So last night, um, Mike was coming out and uh, we, we had talked the previous week. So not last night, but last Sunday night um, about doing some other observing because Shane, you and I have talked about this. We've been talking about this just now. We had a pretty crummy couple months with a couple of months with smoke and some other uh, poor weather conditions and not much observing could really be had at all there for some, some time. It was pretty awful conditions. eh? Yeah, it really was. Um, you know, all sorts of things conspired against us, mostly the smoke. Um, and then when there wasn't smoke, it was either cloudy or uh, we weren't in the new moon cycle. So it really limited things uh, from an astronomical perspective. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. But there was like, I think the the past uh, two full moons, it was clear on those nights and a couple of the nights around it. And and those were the nights I even went out. And when I bought the new binoculars, I, I remember I was looking at the full moon and then it just clouded over again for another uh, couple of weeks. Um, but Mike and I had been doing some, some sightseeing the past uh, couple of times we get together to observe simply because when you, as you know, when you haven't observed for a while, it, it's just the novelty of, of getting out and putting eyepieces in and, and looking at stuff again. So you kind of visit some of those, uh, big bright targets. Uh, we've been looking at lots of globular clusters like M30, M75, M2, M15, and, and a few others. I think we looked at M56, M13, M92, and we looked at some galaxies. We looked at M57 and M27, those two summer planetaries. Um, you know, a few weeks before, a month before, we, we've been looking at like the uh, Veil Nebula and 
some other targets, some other galaxies in, in the summer that are high up. Uh, but, uh, you know, we we had lots of fun looking at those things. And one of the things I'd been thinking of is there's a lot of great astro imagers and astro images that, that they're taking, capturing these days. And a lot of the common names are beginning to percolate into the astronomy software. So I'm running, uh, what is it called? It's called Stellarium. Uh, this was uh, Blake Nancaro's gift to me is that he was teaching me how to do, how to use this. And it's a pretty cool tool, but, but they're putting in all the common names. So what before was just like a, uh, like a four-digit number, like NGC fourteen ninety-one, is is now the fossil footprint nebula. I don't know when it uh, was was named that, but they're actually starting to put that in because it seems like the uh, new uh, astro imagers are all using these more common names. And hey, who who doesn't like fossils, right? Well, nobody. Uh, we like, nobody <laughs> nobody doesn't like them. So. Nobody doesn't like fossils, exactly. So. So I was thinking, well, that's kind of cool because it gives it a name that sticks out. So I remember seeing like images of that, uh, images of other things. And I'm also working on observing and sketching all of the Messiers um, through binoculars, through my new 12 by 36 uh, image stabilized binoculars, which I bought sort of, I think the last week of August or something like that. But I only was able to start really observing with them in, in September once we get into clear weather. But anyway, by about a week or so ago, I... Have progressed about a third of the way through. So I was into like the high 30s or maybe 40 um, messy objects um, observed and sketched. So having finished all the easy to reach targets, um, like with any project, you need to eventually start making a bit of an attack plan. Uh, one of the things with an observing project, Shane, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, is when you start it, it's always difficult to start something, but in a way, in a, an astronomy program, is very easy to start because if you're observing a long list of targets, uh, the sky is just full of them, seemingly, and and you can kind of pick off the bright ones, the low-hanging fruit ones. It's sort of easy sledding for a bit of a while. Uh, you can kind of get going with really out too much. Uh, you can get going outside observing without too much thinking about it even. I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's usually pretty easy to get started. Yeah, for sure. When you have a big list, there's no shortage of objects to take a look at. So yeah, you just take the scope out and start looking. Yeah. But now I'm into the point where I'm having to get up at 4am or 5am like I've been doing even this morning. And uh, you want to know what you're going for when you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning. You don't want to be going out there and with a chart scratching your head trying to figure out why you're awake at this hour and where you're pointing things and all this kind of stuff. You need a bit of a you need a bit of a plan. So um, first thing that I'm going to say that uh, that I, I'm doing these days is making up plans for my observing uh, to try to get the most out of it, to try to really squeeze a lot out of these uh, nice long nights uh, that, uh, that we're getting. So whether you make your own plan or you get a plan, um, that's kind of where I'm starting these days. I'm not sure where you are in any of your observing programs or projects or what you recall from past projects. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have, uh, a binder that comes out with me. Uh, so I have two, two resources, the binder and a, uh, the pocket sky Atlas, but I have the jumbo version. Mm -hmm. Those come out. Um, and in the binder is a bunch of, um, printouts that I've done of various observing lists that are of interest to me right now that I'm working through. Uh, I have them separated, like each list is multiple pages and it's separated by some tabs. So it's pretty easy to navigate, you know, through my binder to the lists that I want. 
Um, and then as I observe objects on these lists, I just, you know, take a pen and put a check mark beside them. So I, nice. I know that I've already observed them. Um, but just having that, so, you know, that takes a little bit of preparation, um, and having that, uh, you know, at the ready makes my observing sessions, uh, more successful because the plan is already there. It's just grab the binder. And then what do I want to look at tonight? You know, if it's a dark sky, uh, and I'm away from some light pollution, I'll probably be working through the, uh, uh, Omira's hidden treasures list. Mm -hmm. Uh, if it's in my backyard lately, uh, I've been uh, just working through the RASC double star list. So it really yeah. depends on where I am and what I feel like that night. Um, and then I, again, I can just pick the list that is of my interest and away I go. Yeah. And so to, to kind of start down that path, you, you need to have a, a plan of, of some sort. You, you have a binder right now. I'm just, uh, I have some computer like lists on my computer. Uh, I, you know, sort of strangely enough, I don't really do that much on the computer for my, um, true astronomy, but I, uh, I have these sort of working lists and, uh, what I do, the reason why I like to have the list on the computer is that. I, I move the the targets around to to reprioritize them because as time goes forward, as things are rising and setting, sometimes it can make sense to switch the order of, of what I'm going to observe or where it is in the sky. It might make sense to make these three observations and then another one in that part of the sky. Or like last night, I observed 38, 36, 37, the Messiers went over, observed 29, which may seem strange, but it was lower down. And then M39, which was the highest object when I started, but it had come down, but it was so high up that it was to the point where it was difficult to observe. So I I will adjust uh, based on the uh, the altitude of the targets. But like you said, you need a, a good uh, chart there. And one of the key ingredients, we've talked about this tons, is what you wear observing. <laughs> yeah. You need to be comfortable and, and part of comfort is staying warm. And, you know, at night, um, as things cool off, um, I always, uh, and we've mentioned this before, but I always like to dress for about 20 degrees cooler than what the forecasted temperature will be. If I do that, I know for sure that I will end when I want to end as opposed to ending when it's when I'm too cold. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there's nothing worse than, you know, shivering and trying to observe. So, um, yeah, dressing warm, pretty important. The one thing I often forget is, um, like I've done this in the past couple of years, less so now is proper footwear. Like sometimes I'm just getting ready and you're totally fine in the city and walking around and doing whatever and getting loaded up. And I find myself out of the observing site or whatever, wearing a pair of like track shoes or something. And I'm like, Oh no, like these are just not going to be warm enough. And uh, they've kind of ruined a couple nights. So I'm always uh, uh, pretty good to at least have my uh, hiking boots with me or something like that. Now that uh, provide a little bit more insulation, you know, one thing I've switched to, this is not attire related, but th this is something I've learned is that I need to take two red lights with me. Um, and I've, I started doing this the past couple of years. The reason is I'm always putting a light down somewhere turned off and I can never find my light. <laughs> if you don't have a second light, good luck with that. <laughs> so you don't, you don't have a tether, uh, like around your neck with the, with the light hanging off. Of oh yeah. I hate doing that. I just okay. find that uncomfortable when I'm like 
trying to be at an eyepiece and the, the lights knocking into telescopes or catching mm. on stuff. So, no, I uh, I have the tether on it or the lanyard, but I uh, yeah, I'm I'm using two lights and I find it really handy because sometimes um, I'm using right now. I have uh, a couple of these. What are they called? skylights from rigel systems one of them is here in pieces and i have another one that's just the red one and then i have my um i made an observing lamp like just one of these click clip on lights but i put a bunch of red duct tape on it (laughs) and it's really quite nice it's an orange light to begin with so it already is a pretty good light for astronomy uh it was slightly bright so i put three levels of duct tape on so now the brightest level is equivalent to the lowest level before it has these three different levels in, in and off. And uh, so I'm using that as both a chart light as well as a sketching light. And so it, it, it works quite well like that. And it doesn't uh, tend to get lost or misplaced. That That is uh, sort of a recent thing that I've been doing. It's a bit of a game changer and it prevents me from having to hold the light awkwardly while I'm while I'm trying to sketch or use a star chart. And because you can kind of put it in different places and it has um, one of those goosenecks on it, uh, it works really well for illuminating the star charts as well. So like last night, Mike and I stuck it up on a couple boxes and turned it on its highest setting. And uh, we were looking at uh, at a star chart. And then of course you can have your handheld light to, to help uh, illuminate different parts of the chart and that sort of thing worked uh, super, super well. But speaking of that is the buddy system. This is something that uh, I was thinking maybe I haven't talked about as much before, but one thing I've, I've really learned in observing, we've talked about joining clubs before, but is to uh, make it a bit of a team effort for finding things. And it can be a lot of fun to just share the experience and uh, both share the in the failures as well as in the successes at the eyepiece. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. And also helps to uh, to keep you honest. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun just to observe with other people and uh, and work through the objects um, together. Last night was a was a really good example. We we were able to observe this uh, very difficult planetary nebula. And if, if either of us had been doing it alone, I, I, I don't, I don't speak for Mike, but at least for myself, I wouldn't have seen it. And, uh, and we definitely uh, each brought something to, uh, to the observing table that, that made that observation a success. So last night, the way that I set this one up, Shane, was I made a list of 17 or 18 nebulas, something like that. Um, that we hadn't either recently observed or we hadn't even observed before. And those include really quick um, PS1, which is Planetary Nebula and M15, Iris Nebula, Wizard Nebula, NGC 7009, um, Fetus Nebula, IC 1396, the um, Fireworks Galaxy, um let's see the bubble nebula pac-man nebula uh though we i think we looked at the or they might looked at the pac-man nebula recently i haven't uh planetary nebula 6210 and hercules 6934 globular and aquiles um the saturn nebula and aquarius and sagita i've never looked at the little cocoon nebula i want to look at that have you ever seen that one mm, i don't think so yeah and then there's a set of double clusters up in sagita too 
I can't remember seeing 6823 and 6820. I thought that just looks interesting. I want to observe those. There's a sharpless object in Cygnus called the Flying Dragon Nebula. I hadn't observed that. Um, last year, I did an observation of the Cocoon Nebula, and I did a sketch of it. And I wanted to do one in Microscope. Uh, I put the Fossil Footprint Nebula in, SH2216, um, 1624, which is a nebula in the cluster, uh, 1333 embryo cluster, and the Northern Trifid in Perseus. And... Out of all that, we observed two. <laughs> so that's kind of the way. That's kind of the way things went. We started the night uh, taking a look at uh, a few messies because I was trying to get these uh, knocked off, and it was nice. It was still not a hundred percent dark. These were well placed. Messier nine, Messier twenty eight, Messier fourteen. I wanted to get uh, sketches of them before they. Uh, got too low and it was like sort of 90% dark so it was fine to sort of hunt them down and it got dark as as I made the observations and sketches uh, with Mike and then somebody had this really bright light on to our south and so I knew they would only have the light on for an hour so then I was like okay we'll just sort of do this for about an hour while it totally gets dark and get some sketching and so we began with those messies and uh, I used my 12 by 36 as Mike was using his 15 by 50s and uh, looked at M9, was a large, uh, fainter than expected haze. And M28 is almost star-like with a bit of a fuzzy halo. M14 is this large, out-of-round, uh, hazy ball through uh, through the binoculars in a heart-shaped asterism. So it was kind of neat to hunt those down. And then we went to try to find P's one, which is a planetary nebula in M15. And spoiler alert, we did not see it. Have you ever seen that one? It's tough. No, I don't think so. I I've seen it before. Somebody else hunted it down and did all the legwork, and then just kind of pointed it out where it was in the field. And I saw it. It seemed really easy at the time, and so I always thought, oh, that's just like an easy thing you can just see in a twelve or thirteen inch telescope. And last night we proved that's not the case. We threw different powers and the O3 filter at it. We spent about I feel like it was almost an hour, it must have been at least 40 or 50 minutes trying to make the observation. We used powers from 40x to 200 power or more in the 12 inch and the filter and no filter. And we had a great view of M15 and all the different stars in it. You could see the different star chains and everything, but we could not get this tiny little planetary nebula in m15 we just we just couldn't vet it out it was just it just wasn't working out for us i'm not really sure why we had different charts than that but we need to do a little bit more work there i guess a little bit more preparatory work in order to uh figure out how to hunt that one down i guess hmm. yeah sometimes uh well when you're chasing you know challenging objects like that you have to be prepared for uh, not being successful the first time or maybe the first 10 times it's you know sometimes you you just have to uh, be persistent because different sky conditions or eyepiece filter combinations can all of a sudden make it appear so yeah it's really just catching all of those variables at the right moment uh, for some of these challenging uh, objects yeah there's this like trapeze asterism that you have to find but then the the um, nebulas on the other side. And I remember when we found it before, we knew this, but then we just used the right power and the right filter and it was in the right place and we were able to get it. But I don't I don't know why it seems so easy uh, on that particular uh, evening, but uh, but it was. Um, 
Then we went um, over into the Perseus area, sort of on the left, or I guess on the northeast or northwest side of Perseus uh, left when you're looking at Murfak anyway, uh, on these nights when it's just rising. And we started over at uh, NGC 1528, uh, which is in this little asterism on the side of Perseus. And this, this last year became my new favorite little cluster because in the binoculars in any binoculars even the 12 by 36s it looks like uh, a nebula it looks like this perfect little round nebula and i was really shocked that i'd never seen it before it was on the chart i just happened to uh, pick it up uh, sweeping um that is worth taking a look at whenever you get a chance shane you should be able to get it as as uh resolved stars in your uh four inch telescope even from the city i would imagine yeah 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 i think i've seen that one before yeah, it's pretty nice. Uh, nearby, there's some other clusters, and there's uh, a nebula. This is the uh, what's, what they're calling the fossil footprint, or NGC 1491. And so we, or I should say Mike, uh, started star hopping and and landed on uh, something. And we thought it was showing a little bit of nebula there. And I started doing the sketch, and then I became really doubtful that we were on the right target. And so we took the filter off and looked at the cluster and it was a really neat cluster it was in this sort of circle of stars and then the cluster was inside this circle of stars we couldn't figure out what the cluster was i think it might have been like a rupra cluster or something like that but uh that wasn't it and then so we put the o3 filter on i think the the 40 millimeter at 45x and and eventually he picked it up sweeping and then uh, we were able to see the the fossil footprint pretty easily at 130 power. And uh, from my observation, I, I put in the 17 millimeter, 92 degree with the O3 filter. And that dimmed the central star. There's like this star, you know, to me, it almost looked like, you know, in Pac-Man, they had those ghosts that Pac-Man hunts around. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it looked like one of those ghosts. <laughs> okay. Maybe it, Halloween kind of creeping in here to me anyway, kind of starts and it has a very clearly defined Northern edge. And then on the bottom, it's, it's kind of like a bit jagged or it kind of runs, uh, runs out. And with, uh, yeah, with that high piece, I forget, I think it was like around 80 or maybe 75 or 80 power, pretty nice, uh, nice wide field of view with the 92 degree and, uh, able to actually, uh, make that observation but we noticed what was weird though is we tried them with and without the filter and such we noticed that um with a really low power the star really shone like like it was almost difficult to see the nebula for the star and then as we increased the power um the star faded out dramatically and the nebula became more pronounced uh it was just sort of uh a, a, an observation that we noticed with that particular nebula that seemed uh distinct versus other observations that we've made cool yeah so then we moved on our big challenge for the night was to try to see this huge planetary uh, sharpless 2-216 that's the largest planetary nebula i forget what it is but i think it's uh, almost a couple of degrees across so it's just about two degrees um i think it's like anyway it's 100 arc minutes i think and it's very circular and uh, I didn't look at anything before. I didn't look at any other sketches. I didn't look at any astro images. I just, on the chart, it's just like this big planetary nebula. And uh, need no three filter, of course, to uh, to enhance those. So 
what we did is we put the uh, 40 millimeter in, in the O3 in the paracord in the 12 inch and we we're panning around we thought we could kind of vaguely see something uh, but knowing it's so big we wanted to increase the field of view you can do that by simply taking the paracord out and i think that reduces the power by like 10 or 15x so it's going to increase it a uh, um, the field of view by, by a significant amount, the true field of view. So we did that, and then we noticed that it actually dimmed it a little bit. Weird, eh? Mm -hmm. So we were thinking about this, and the reason why it dimmed is because we're suddenly increasing the exit pupil. I forget what it is, like seven and a half or eight millimeter exit pupil now. So then it occurred to us that the exit pupil has increased so much and our eyes don't dilate to eight millimeters or whatever it is, that um, we we're losing more light. And that's why it was dimming instead of, you know, giving us a larger field of view and, and, and concentrating the light. So we swapped in a 32 millimeter eyepiece with the O3, and then it just was quite a dramatic change. We were suddenly able to take advantage not only of a slightly increase in the magnification, which increases the contrast, but also we weren't uh, throwing away uh, a couple inches of aperture there, whatever it is, and uh, more easily could uh, could see this very clearly defined edge, almost like a half moon. And then on the other side, um, it kind of falls out, but it had a little bit of a of a gap in it. Sort of had this this gap on on the brightest edge, and uh, so did the observation, did the sketch, and then we went in and looked at it. And I had said at the time, I bet you our sketch doesn't look anything like the image. And if you look at the image, you'll see it's this beautiful um, sort of half moon crescent. But we sort of dug a little hole out in it, and when we were looking at the images, Mike noticed that it was um, very red, like a different color in the portion that we had put this notch in. And so we figure that whatever that um, emission part is of that portion of the nebula it must not be uh, something that responds either to an O3 filter or uh, it's something that uh, is not really visually detectable or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just reading a, another visual observation of this and uh, I think it was with a six inch reflector. So it's from you, you might be familiar with this guy. Was it G from Mel Bertels? No. Oh. Uh, J JG is uh, his is how he signs a lot of his messages on uh, okay. cloudy nights. And um, he was using a six-inch achromatic refractor, one of mm -hmm. those F5 ones, and uh, a 40-millimeter eyepiece, I think. Or hold on here. Does he say which eyepiece? Uh, I'm not sure. But um, he was going between 25 times and 32 times, sweeping around, took about 40 minutes, and then he finally found a faint round glow. Yeah. Um, and he said it was best seen through the highly transmissive uh, 12NM wide astronomic H beta. Uh, oh. the faint, yeah, the faint disk is finally or has been finally confirmed at both magnifications and through the, uh, both uh, H beta filters from astronomic and beta. Uh, interestingly, he says the O3 filter has not revealed the arc on the disc rim as reported by other observers with big daubs. So mm. maybe, uh, maybe play around with filters, I guess, if you have uh, different size telescopes. Yeah. What we hoped for, what we really wanted was a filter slide in the telescope when we were doing this. Mm. And it would, it would have been nice to, uh, to have that. It was still a little bit low as well. 
and we wondered if maybe that was uh, playing into it uh, as well. But this was one of those things where we we had uh, we sort of didn't think we were going to see it. We kind of went into this relatively skeptical that we'd be able to uh, hunt that down. I know that Mel Bartles has seen it in his six inch and up to twenty five inch daubs, and he was using the NPB or whatever it's called uh, filter. And uh, I think that has some slightly different band passes to it as well. But yeah, we, we, I had the other filters there. It was just, uh, yeah, we just, we thought that maybe because it was so low and we were just happy to, uh, to have seen it at all. But the plan is to go back to this one later on, maybe next month, once it's uh, about another 15 or 20 degrees, at least maybe even 30 degrees higher up. Uh, I said, man, this would be a really neat object to see when it's as high as, like the double cluster is right now in the evening sky. So yeah, it was just at a nice altitude though for hunting it down. You know, sometimes it's nice just to get the field down and figure out where things are when they're at sort of that 30 or 40, you know, I guess in this case, 30 degrees up or if that um, just easy to kind of hunt around them when it gets up overhead, it can be in, in that uh, difficult to maneuver area for the daub. Mm -hmm. So then we toured around a little bit. We looked at uh, NGC 2403 and M77, but we we were spent after that, like after doing that observation and messing around with it for the better part of an hour. Then that was kind of it. Mike packed up around 11 or just after, quarter after, and he uh, he headed home and I went in and warmed up. And then I went back out and sketched up M38, 36, 37, 29, 39, and 35. So uh, last few sketches were not my best to say the least. I was pretty spent by the time one o'clock rolled around. So, but I'm more than half done sketching those messies now in, uh, in the binoculars, which was, isn't too bad for 36, uh, days since I started on that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. How about, uh, how about your thoughts on planning and executing, uh, your observing sessions, Shane, do you have anything uh, well, like I mentioned, you know, I take my binder out with my lists. Um, I always have a range of eyepieces, you know, that'll, uh, allow me to have various magnifications or exit pupils or fields of view. Um, you know, I guess really what I'm saying is, is for the most part, I'm, I come out fairly adaptable, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to come out and be super purpose-driven for like one style of object or anything like that. It's just you know, be ready for anything type of, uh, approach. Um, and then, you know, we talked about, um, you know, being warm, uh, flashlight, make sure the battery, you know, is, is of decent power. If it's been in there for a long time, you may want to replace it because there's, there's certain things like, you know, if you forget one eyepiece, chances are you still have other eyepieces in the case and you can keep observing, but there's some things like sometimes, uh, if your flashlight dies, that may end an observing session or force you to really change what you're looking at. Because if you can't reference star charts or lists, because it's too dark to see, uh, then you just go for memory and you might just, you know, look at some bright messiers or things that, you know, uh, and not necessarily what you were hoping to look at that night. So, um, you know, try to, I always try to mitigate potential, um, you know, observing session breakers like that so that I, I don't get caught. 
Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's just get out there and do it. Um, if there's something that is very challenging, sometimes I, I don't really do this too often, but I know other observers do it and they, they'll go to their planetarium software before they go out. And, you know, if it's a refractor that they're observing with, they'll switch the left, right orientation in the planetarium software. So what they're seeing on the screen will mimic what they're seeing through the eyepiece and then they like they practice the star hopping on their planetarium software you know i'll go from this bright star to this other star and you know that might be within my telrad view or whatever and they basically simulate what they'll do actually at the eyepiece outside um so that's kind of an interesting approach like i say i don't really do that or i've done it a couple of times but i i know others that do it pretty regularly so the only uh, the only risk in that one though is you could you could pollute yourself pretty good <laughs> by by uh taking in too much of like what's in the software. I think it was somebody was saying this recently, either on our podcast or maybe I think it was Cindy. We're gonna have her on next week to talk about sketching. And you know, it's just sometimes it can be easy to absorb, like if you're looking at what the target looks like. So what I did for my software is I turned off all the images. So when I'm when I'm working through it, I can't see. I've actually totally disabled it. So I only see like a like either the square, a green square if it's a nebula or a circle if it's a cluster or like a little red oval if it's a galaxy because I I always get concerned even though my sketch doesn't look anything at all like what this object was last night. Um like there's information in having having done it that way. But if I was polluted by the image, I might not have made the observation because I might've been so, um, so much so looking for what, what the target actually looked like in, in the software or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. If you know what you should be seeing, sometimes you can convince yourself you saw it, even though you may not have. Or, um, or not see it because like, the, like last night, it didn't look at all like the other sketches that I've seen of it. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly uh, a bias that can come in if you know what the image already looks like. Um, yeah, yeah, that's valid. Um, what was I going to say to that? Um, the, the thing that I do like though, sometimes if I'm doing like, if I'm trying to split a double star that, um, is very difficult, like let's say serious, uh, A and B, um, those ones, I, I like when I'm doing that type of observation, I do like to know where the companion star will be located. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because that one, like that's a little different though. Yeah. When stars are kind of twinkling in and out, um, you do see like, at least I do, I, I sort of see these points of light at, and, and it's like, is that, is that the companion and knowing roughly, you know, where that yeah. companion should be is very helpful. Yeah, I don't know how you would do those observations without that, because uh, I've tried to do some of those and without that information, it's essentially impossible sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I like your point on the light. That's again, like I've seen earlier, I use two lights and one of the lights that I'm using, because I have one of my lights apart here right now, because I keep forgetting to get a new nine volt for it. Um, but I have a I have a backup light that's almost identical, is I'm using a rechargeable light that I can recharge on USB. So mm -hmm. when it runs out, I just plug it in. It lasts a long time. Like it, it can last for weeks uh, in the field, it seems. So, and uh, yeah, it's it's working pretty good. And 
The other thing is this, this um, is a limitation of all star atlases that I've ever used in the field. And that is that it always, there's always objects that are going to be either on the seam or on the edge of the charts. So for example, some of the targets around like the heart and soul in interstellarum are on the top right corner of some charts and the bottom left of others like they're not well placed so it can be difficult to figure out like their orientation but the chart the actual uh, chart of the targets are really well done but it's difficult to figure out where they are in the sky and the same with objects that are maybe on the seam like last night we were having trouble orientating ourselves when we were looking for this uh, this planetary nebula because uh, it was just off the seam uh, or the, what do you call it, the spine uh, of the book. So Mike had his uh, Cambridge Double Star Atlas. So we were flipping back and forth between that and and this atlas in order to kind of figure out how we were uh, hunting hunting it down. The other thing that's super handy is the, uh, the old right angle, at, um, you know, correct image uh finder scopes are, mm-hmm. are super super handy so we're using that quite a bit for uh for hunting down the uh the targets last night right on yeah works uh works pretty good so that's sort of a a bit of an anatomy of of my session last night simply because uh, that's what i was doing yeah, and it's cool. best sometimes it's best just to talk about what what we're doing then to try to you know make up a bunch of notes for something else that uh yeah, it gives gives people a little bit of, of an understanding of the mechanics of this. And since we do talk about the actual going out and the doing of the astronomy, uh, maybe it's helpful for people or maybe it's not. I don't know, but I was too tired to do anything else. <laughs> so that's what we got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodness. All right. Anything to uh, else to add, Shane? Nope, that is all. All right. Good stuff. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers. You know, you can always send us your show notes, your observations and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.